But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. In June of 1944, there was what probably many of you know of, this decisive battle in Normandy where Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy and began their trek to eventually head towards Berlin and end World War II. At this point, the war had taken so many lives. It was devastating for many countries, many peoples. But by the time that this battle had taken place in June of 1944, it was pretty much a known idea that the Allies were going to win. In fact, Allied generals had decided and had predicted by Christmas of 1944, the Germans would surrender, the war would be won, and it would be over. Because at this point of the war, the Allies had essentially controlled the air. And if you know anything about war and battles, controlling the air is very significant. They were bombing German cities, factories, oil refineries, uh, manufacturing plants. And so by controlling all of that, it essentially degraded the ability for the Germans to continue the war to its fullest as they had been so dominantly. On top of that, on the eastern front of Germany, over a million Soviet soldiers had lined the edges of the Soviet Union heading towards eastern Germany. And so you had these two great forces, the British and Americans on the west, the, German, uh, the Soviets on the east, and they're pressing in towards Germany. And so it's a, it was a very reasonable thing to think that the war was won. They just needed to mop up, you might say, all of the German forces and eventually Hitler's armies. But Hitler, despite knowing that there was this um, great challenge that was before him, would not go without at least one significant last push. And very much to the surprise of the Western forces and the Allied forces, the Germans decided to launch a spearhead attack against the West. And they did so by combining most of their military forces into one spear attack, leading to what's often called the Battle of the Bulge. It was so surprising to the West that they really thought this was, you know, Germany was a dead dog. It had lost. There was no hope. And Hitler really believed that this could turn the tide of the war. The Germans would lose that battle, eventually lose that war, but that battle in and of itself had terrible casualties. 80,000 American soldiers were killed, captured, or injured. 100,000 German soldiers had died in combat on that one battle, and it's often considered to be the bloodiest battle of the war. I want to give you that illustration because you have to realize when there is an infernal enemy, they refuse to give up, even when they know they've lost. It's not as though 
Hitler just decided, I'm going to surrender. No, he would fight to the very end. And we have an enemy that is far more powerful than Hitler, and his name is Satan. But we also have another enemy that you might say is at least on par with Satan, perhaps more powerful than Satan. And you know what that enemy is? It's called sin, our sinful nature. We know that according to the Bible and the New Testament and Paul's letters and Peter and John, we know that Christ has won. The war has been won. Satan has been defeated. But very much like Hitler, Satan will not go down without dragging as many people as possible with him. As well, sin still wreaks havoc on the world. And as long as there is sin and Satan, there is death and turmoil and difficulty, trial and suffering. Until the very end of our days where Christ returns, we must never think that the war is fully over. And Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, makes this critical point. The battle rages. The fight continues. And so I'd like to look at this battle by examining three points regarding what Paul speaks of in chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. First, that there's a reason for this battle, according to verse 16. Second is that there's the incredible heat, the climax of the battle in verse 17. And then finally, there is a victor. There is a victor of this battle in verse 18. So first, we look at the reason for this battle, and in it, I see it in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The reason for this battle is that as a Christian, the Holy Spirit has broken through your heart. He's transformed you. You had no desire for him. You're, you had no longing for him. But God sovereignly through the gospel of Christ by his spirit breaks through and changes and shapes your will now that you actually want to obey him. You want to follow him. But without the inbreaking of the spirit of God in your heart, in your life, you would never worship Christ. You wouldn't truly want to follow him or have faith. Paul makes this clear in Galatians 4.8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. And we fight because we see in verse 17, the spirit battles the flesh. That's the assumption that Paul makes. Paul assumes that as a Christian, you have the indwelling spirit in you. And the spirit of God, he doesn't come into your heart because it's all clean and tidy. And it's, it's not as though, it's not like when you prepare for a very honored guest. What's your instinct to do when someone is coming over your house for the first time? You clean your house. You make it tidy. Perhaps you want to make a good impression. Let us not think that's how we receive the Spirit of God. You know, the Spirit of God doesn't come into your heart when it's all clean and tidy and everything looks good. Exactly the opposite. The Spirit comes into the home of your heart 
and he comes into a sewage-laden hoarder home. Do you ever watch Hoarders? Read it. I mean, it's really shocking how, how uh, degraded a home can become. Imagine sewage water, vermin, you know, all sorts of terrible things in a home, and it's covering this home. You wouldn't ever want someone to come into that house. I read a book called Coming Clean, and the author was the daughter of a hoarder, and she would sleep in a bookshelf. She would sleep on the last ledge of the bookshelf because everything around her was cluttered, and there was sewage water up to here with bird feces because birds had come in and uh, had taken over. It had gotten so bad that eventually the house went on fire. I want you to imagine this sewage-laden, vermin, cockroached home, rotting food with all sorts of filth. And this, so the author says, whenever her friends would come near the house, she would actually veer away and walk over as if she's walking up another set of houses because she didn't want her friends to actually think she lived there. She didn't want anyone to even come close to seeing that she lived in that house. That's what happens when, when you live in such a house. The Holy Spirit, he doesn't wait for you to clean up your house. Your house, my house, was disgusting without him. And he comes in, and you can't clean yourself up any more than that hoarder could clean up his house. For the Holy Spirit, he comes into the house and he himself is the one who does the cleaning. He does the transforming. He makes your house able to be welcome for him. You don't. I don't. So we can see that when Paul says this person walks by the Spirit, such a person can't be just a churchgoer. I mean, that doesn't match up with this idea of the hoarder house, the hoarder heart, that, that just disgusting heart. How can you clean yourself up by just regularly going to church or doing a few deeds for the poor or going on a, a missions trip? That, that just can't do the job of cleansing a heart. You can't go to church on Sundays to put in your time. And then the rest of the week, you get to really do what you want. If the Holy Spirit is indwelling in your heart, he changes you. He transforms you. And he causes you to live moment by moment, actively wanting to know Christ. Look at the second part of verse 16. When the Spirit dwells in us, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now look at that assumption. That assumption means that there is still the flesh that can be gratified. So know this, is that when you are a believer of Christ, you still have the flesh. It's possible to gratify the flesh even though the spirit is indwelling in you. That as long as we are in this world, we're never fully free from the desires of the flesh, the desires of the sinful nature. The flesh still is tempting, seductive, alluring, let us not be shocked that Christians struggle in the faith, that they actually can be seduced. Sexual images are still enticing. 
when a person accidentally kicks your chair passing you by and they give you a scowl, you're, it's not as though suddenly you say, forgive you, I want to bless you. There's an instinct that right, rises up that says, you, want, you look with glaring eyes yourself and say, what's your problem? Christians do that. Um, Christians, we, we cannot just simply by reading the Bible and praying a lot change that, that inner you know, desire, seduction, allure that longs for the flesh. But here's the difference. The Christian can decide not to gratify the desires of the flesh. We can battle. We want to battle. We see the cause so great and so real that we're going to fight and we want to fight. We don't just simply say, that's too hard, I don't even want to try. No, we say, this is hard, I will fight. You actually ultimately, in your heart of hearts, want to fight as hard as you can. And you know yourself, you're a, think of the weak-limbed, skinny junior hire going against, against, in the octagon against an MMA fighter. So this junior hire is about four feet tall, four and a half feet tall, and has weak limbs, weak arms, no muscle tone whatsoever. And they look at this guy who is just bulky, gigantic, knows everything. And you think, why would you fight that fight? That just seems so absurd. But behind you is Christ, the King of Kings, supreme and a warrior. And he has already destroyed the devil, sin, death. And he's on your side. He's the one who's doing the fighting. You're not. So you want to fight. You can fight. You love him and you know he's on your side, so you will not stop fighting. I love the way that uh, you know, theologian John Stott illustrates this point. He says, it is no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear, and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it, I can't. And it is no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it, I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like this, like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. You can fight because Jesus is indwelling by his spirit in you. And because of that truth, you don't have to be afraid, no matter the circumstances that you face. So the reason that we have a battle in the first place is that we have the indwelling spirit who is always fighting, and you can fight. But let us not think that that fight is going to be easy. According to verse 17, it is an intense battle. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The battleground is your spirit. Every Christian knows that this is where the battle takes place above all else. 
The, the greatest struggle, as I shared earlier, is not somewhere out there. It's not in the halls of Congress, the Supreme Court. The greatest battle that you will fight is in your own soul. And if you really know that the Spirit of God is with you, you can win. You can overcome. So here's the challenge. We absolutely want to take seriously the desires of the flesh. They are real. They are deadly. They are powerful. But it is impossible to fight flesh, your flesh, with flesh. This is what I mean. It, it's impossible to defeat an addiction, let's say, by saying to yourself, I'm going to try really hard. You think about all the broken promises an alcoholic, a drug addict, a gambler makes. I'm never going to do it again. I'm not going to take a sip. I'm not going to you know, take this drug anymore. A lot of broken promises by addicts. Why? Because what is their main power by which they try to overcome that addiction? Their own willpower. And our flesh cannot defeat the flesh. The reason that is that our flesh thrives on self-righteousness and self-effort. The more you actually try to obey God and follow him based on your own will and power, the more we think it's in our own power and strength to change ourselves and to follow Jesus. Then it's the less we think we actually need Christ. And you see, that's so contradictory. It, you could see why it doesn't work. Because if it's my will and my strength and my power that makes me less dependent on Christ, which then makes me less able to fight in light of who Christ is because he's my power and strength. So we do not fight the flesh by our flesh, by our will, by our strength, by our intelligence, by our plans, by our strategies. Our flesh also thrives in self-glory. There's a phrase, it's called glory suck, and meaning we suck glory as much as possible for ourselves. We want to impress people. We want to prove ourselves that we're worthwhile, we're significant, we belong. And so often that desire actually keeps us from belonging. It's so self-harming. It keeps us from experiencing significance. The more we want to impress others with our successes, our victories, Sometimes if you're in the middle of a conversation and you feel as though, and someone is complimenting someone and you're in the group and you, you hear that compliment and you, your first instinct perhaps is to think, well, I have actually something to say about myself. That's pretty good too. And you start talking about yourself. Well, yeah, I know what they did is good, but actually listen to what I did. Who amongst us has not at least been tempted if not fallen to that? I know I have. We want to be significant, and we think that the way to be significant is to one-up other people's significance, or to perhaps the opposite, to tear someone down, tear someone their significance by criticizing them, by gossiping about them, rather than by actually being content and trusting and recognizing that our glory is never in ourselves. Our worth is not valued by our CV, our beauty, our, our bank accounts. 
Why is social media so successful, so powerful? Because it latches on to this very idea, this glory suck idea, this idea of thriving in self-glory. When we go online and we see someone doing something significant, don't we think either, wow, they're really great. I need to come up with something for myself now. Or, you know what, they're not so great. We start criticizing them. Oh, yeah, their child got second place in the, you know, the tiddlywink competition or whatever it might be. And I'm, I'm going to strive and I'm going to, I want to put my child up as first place in the, you know, horseshoe competition, whatever it is. And we're always thinking, and you just have to scroll down Instagram or Facebook and you just come to realize how much our hearts so long for glory, for proving ourselves, for proving that we're not failures that we are successful, that we are beautiful, that we are talented. We are so flawed in our way of thinking about where glory truly comes from. What we really need is to see not this pitiful glory that this world offers, the success of our children, of ourselves. Maybe in, you know, it's, Think about every single platform, social media platform, LinkedIn, TikTok. I mean, the, the LinkedIn, it's all about all of your achievements. I know there's networking. It's great. has great qualities to it, like most social media. But it also has this idea of, well, look at all the achievements that all my peers have, and then suddenly we sink and go into midlife crisis. Oh, my job stinks. You know, look at all my peers. They're at this level, vice president of so-and-so, vice president of the Tiddlywin Company of America, and I am only a project manager. It, our, our vision of what is glorious is so small. Let me show you what is glorious. Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like a roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's obviously referring to Jesus. You know, when it says his right hand held seven stars, I don't want you to think about the stars of the American flag. We're not talking about these little seven stars. We're talking about, you know, the, the sun. Imagine holding seven suns, big stars. Imagine the, the sun shining in full strength out of his face. This is a God who was so glorious that John says, after seeing this, he fell down as though dead. He just couldn't, his knees got weak and he couldn't stand. Now that is something to post about on Facebook. If we were to see this, we would not settle for this pitiful self-glory and worldly glory that is nothing. I mean, it really is sort of like this. This is even a meager metaphor, but imagine being invited to the most delicious feast the world has ever known. Think about every single most delicious thing you can eat in your life. So imagine that. I mean, for those of you who like lobster or crab, 
um, Wagyu steak, most delicious and freshest of salads, all sorts of delectable desserts. So you're going to this feast, you've been invited, and you can partake and fill yourself to overflowing. And so as you're going along the way, you see a McDonald's. You stop and you say, you know, I'm really hungry. And so you stop and you get a 40-piece chicken McNugget, the, the super gulp, super-sized Coke, and a bunch of apple pies. And you go and you eat it and you're so stuffed. You get to the feast and you're just bowled over because your stomach is aching from 40 pieces. I know, you're probably thinking, I could eat 40 pieces easily. I'll still be hungry. Let's say 1,000 pieces, okay? Whatever you want to say. And I know all of you high school guys especially, you're thinking that I could eat 40 pieces, no problem. 1,000 pieces. What a waste. That's such a waste. My friends, we are doing this all the time when we fulfill our flesh. Verse 17 says, The flesh keeps us from enjoying the most remarkable experience that we could ever imagine from doing what we want. If you're a Christian, you want to see Jesus as John saw him. But our flesh is fighting you to settle for this thousand-piece McNugget meal with super-duper large Coke. And that's a problem. That's a serious problem. The flesh will always try to keep you from the desire that you ultimately have. There are times you will bear the full front of this battle, full effect of it, and it can seem so disheartening. You falter, you fail. Perhaps even through tears, sometimes you have thought to yourself, why do I keep sinning the same sin over and over again? And you, you're struggling and you're, there's so much heartache because you want to follow Christ. You want to know him, but then you're struggling. May I encourage you with this? If you have that struggle, if you are battling, you are a believer. You know the good news of Christ. Jesus, you know that if you have Christ, you will fight, and at least it shows you are a believer of Christ, or you would have no battle at all. Christians want to obey Christ, want to trust him, but the f- they fight the flesh at every turn, and it's hard. I really appreciate Martin Luther's encouragement on this. Listen to what he says here. He says, do not be surprised then when you feel this battle of the sinful nature against the spirit. Pluck up your courage. And comfort yourself with these words of Paul, which tell you that it is impossible to follow the guiding of the Spirit without any hindrance by the sinful nature. The sinful nature will resist you so that you cannot do what you would gladly do. It will not be enough then if you follow the Spirit and not your sinful nature, which is easily overthrown by impatience, seeks revenge, holds grudges, hates God, is angry with Him, despairs, and so on. Therefore, When you feel this battle, do not be discouraged, but resist in the spirit and say, I am a sinner and I feel sin in me, for I have not yet put off the sinful nature, but I will obey the spirit and not my sinful nature. I will by faith hold, lay, hope, lay hold upon Christ and by his word, I will raise myself up and will not do what my sinful nature desires. That's encouraging, isn't it? 
even Luther, he understood that when you have this battle, when you're fighting, you refuse to yield. You refuse to simply lay down and say, I'm over, it's done, I can't, I'll never win. We say, I have sinned, I have failed, but I have Christ. And because I have Christ, I have won. And because I have won, I will pick myself up and I will not do what my sinful nature desires anymore. The battle of sin and the spirit is fierce. It is ever present. But we know this. Paul says in Romans 8.27 this. Listen to what he says. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. The third person of the triune Godhead. He is the one who intercedes regularly for us because he's indwelling in us going to the Father and saying, this person has been purchased by the Son. The blood of Christ takes all the sins, past, present, and future, and no longer brings conviction of guilt, but rather frees them to worship and come into the Father's presence forever. We respond by depending on Christ, who fights our battles, as we see in verse 18, who is our victor the victor of the battle. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. When the Spirit, who points us to Christ, who brings us to Him, leads us, delivers us, so we can follow Him, trust Him. We talked about the law. It has no curse. It has no power upon us. We are freed from the curse of the law, as Paul says in Galatians 3.13. We're free from our hard labors to prove ourselves before God and the world. I don't need to prove my worth before my parents, before other pastors. I can just simply rest in the reality that I am a child of God. And there is nothing more freer to your conscience than that. It's what allows you then to live with joy. The more you have Christ and that freedom, the more you can have joy, the more you can initiate reconciliation. Even when you know someone is, has wronged you, you can still forgive and show grace. That's not easy. You have to battle the flesh. You have to battle the flesh to wake up in the morning and worship. You have to battle the flesh to come on Sunday when perhaps you're afraid of COVID. You have to battle the flesh when you are in a state of worry and anxiety and it's flooding your soul, and you're trying to map out the future, and you're trying to think through every single pattern and plan, making sure that all the pieces are right so that you take the right steps. We don't need to do that even. We have Christ. He's won the victory, and he's won our freedom. You are free. You're also free to confess your sin. Parents, I think there is no greater power as a parent than to confess sin and ask for forgiveness from your children to show them that you need Christ just as much as they do. And if they can only understand that and see that you are a child just like them, doesn't mean you don't have a real um, responsibility of authority and stewardship over their lives, but you're still a child just like them. You're free to know that you can't change yourself. You're free to know that you don't have enough willpower and intelligence 
You're free to share your failures with others. We don't even need to tinge that failure with, well, I did lie, I did steal, but it was actually because of this and that. We can actually just simply confess our sin. We're free to not have to live by our own power and our own righteousness. And we know we're accepted by God through Christ. So ultimately, like the prodigal son, we battle, but we always come to our senses. We always walk back. We always take that journey home. And we know that it is Christ who fights that fight for us. So in Christ, when we sin, we have the righteousness of Christ. We aren't swallowed up by the devil and his accusations. Guess what? When you're fighting this fight of flesh, the devil, he doesn't create anything new. He's not a creator. He's a distorter and a disfigurer. So what he does is he takes that fight and that battle, and he starts accentuating the accusations more. Oh, yeah, you know, the ways that you've actually turned away from the Lord, maybe you're really not a Christian. You need to try harder. He wants you to try harder by your own flesh. He wants you to think that you're not good enough. Always know that the flesh and the devil work hand in hand to bring you away from God and away from the gospel of Christ. But know this, you can never lose your adoption. It's been written in the blood of Jesus Christ. The papers have been signed by Jesus' blood. And that blood, that ink, is indelible. It's permanent. It cannot be erased by anyone, not even you. You can't even mess up so badly that that blood ink is erased from your adoption papers. The greatest comfort in this life is knowing that as we cling closely to Christ and his atoning work, the Spirit of God will never let us go. He is truly, as David Wilkinson says, the hound of heaven. He will chase you down. He will not let you go. No pit bull is stronger in his jaws than to, uh, than to know that you will somehow lose your salvation. It won't happen. The Holy Spirit digs in. He will not let you go. Isn't that good news? Praise God for that. Let's pray together. Can you take a moment just to think about the different ways that this battle rages in your soul? And if there is any way in which um, perhaps you've given up in your heart or you felt as though, I don't think I could do this. I, I don't think I can fight this fight anymore. And I know some of you are facing all sorts of temptations, the temptation to fear. You have loved ones who are ill or sick, and there's just been this steady stream of difficulty in your life. The Lord wants to show you that you don't need to fight anymore. He's going to fight for you. He's one. If there's a perhaps a sin, a besetting sin that has just felt as though it's insurmountable, feel like you'll never change.
there's an anger in your heart or your soul, maybe there's an unreconciled relationship, that's a real battle. I tell you that the greatest battles of your heart is not something outside of you. It's not the government. It's not the person who has hurt you. It's fighting that fight. The Lord wants to grant you this freedom. And he wants to show you that only in Jesus is there hope. So take a moment. Would you take a moment just to look to him and to say, Lord, I need you. I need to remember the cross of Christ. To remember the atoning work of Jesus and what he's done. to see that. 